Recent decades have seen dramatic increases in the quality and quantity of research aimed at identifying effective education practices. Laws like the Every Student Succeeds Act have sought to capitalize on this development by urging educators to adopt practices backed by scientific evidence. Yet, for the most part, teachers ignore research in their day-to-day -day work. Why is that the case? And could a simple change in how researchers design studies change the situation? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Daniel Willingham, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. Along with David Daniel of James Madison University, Dan's co-author of the new article, Making Education Research Relevant, that will appear in the spring 2021 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Dan, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks, Marty. Great to be here. So why don't most teachers pay attention to education research? Well, anybody who's listening to this podcast knows that there are, of course, multiple reasons that teachers might not. Well, first, we should qualify and say, like, some teachers do. And of course, that's true. And, and anytime you write an article like this, you get a little bit broad, right? Um, I was careful to use most in my questions. Okay, so thank, thank you. Let thank the record you. show. And, I, and I'm, I'm so used to extremism, I suppose, that I didn't even uh, catch that. Um, but yeah, so, and obviously there's gonna be multiple reasons why most teachers don't. And so one of the primary reasons, of course, is that it's not very accessible for teachers. Um, there are not many outlets like Education Next that are free to access and are written in a, a, a audience friendly um, manner. And there are, there are a handful of other uh, outlets like Education Next that are meant for specifically for teachers. But what we wanted to draw attention to in this uh, piece is the role that researchers play in essentially answering questions that are of interest to researchers and are not really going to end up being interesting to practitioners. So that leads in, I think, to my second question, which is that the subtitle of your article is how researchers can give teachers more choices. And I think many researchers want to give teachers answers, not choices. That is, they want to discover best practices and then encourage the adoption of those practices. Why do you see choices as the right goal? Uh, because their con teaching contexts can be so different. And so I think uh, believe if researchers believe, and I wonder how many would actually believe this, but if researchers believe that there's one absolute best method to uh, manage a classroom or one absolute best method to uh, help children understand poetry or whatever it is, pick your thing. And it doesn't matter uh, what the preferences of the teachers, like how I like to run my classroom. It doesn't matter who my students are. It doesn't matter what the neighborhood is like, any of the context. There's just one best method. That seems sort of crazy, right? But it seems very believable that I could say, okay, if you've got students who are kind of like this, this is a really effective classroom management. Oh, and one other thing, you have to be pretty experienced in the classroom. And then if that's true, your students are like this and you're pretty experienced, then this will be a fantastic method for uh, classroom management. And then I say, well, what if I'm not? And we say, well, we haven't figured out a way to make it work for other people. That seems very believable to me, right? And so this is what David and I had in mind when we talked about choices is that we, inf we researchers infrequently pay a whole lot of attention to contextual factors, except insofar as we kind of see them as a nuisance and also sort of secretly hope that 
whatever we discover will apply across every single context and we'll we'll be able to say this is the king kong of all methods all right so let's then dig into the specifics of your critique of standard research practice you focus in on two aspects of most education studies how researchers choose control groups and then their focus on finding statistically significant differences right let's start with control groups what's the standard practice in this area as you understand it and why is it inadequate so the standard practice is to use a business as usual control group. Um, so if I've got a new method of teaching fractions or uh, classroom management or whatever it is, I'll pick out some number of classrooms. Um, I'll get some teachers on board uh, to participate with me. I'll randomly select half those teachers. I'll introduce them to this new method get them to uh, deploy it in their classrooms and then measure the outcome that I'm interested in. The other half of the teachers who are not selected, I'll say teach fractions the way you usually do or manage your classrooms the way you, so that's why it's called business as usual. Less frequently, and we, uh, those of, uh, folks who have a look at the article will know, we actually collected some data on uh, how typical these practices are that, we uh, that I'm describing uh, from journal articles. Uh, let, uh, the other practice that uh, researchers might do is instead of the business as usual, they'll actually have those other teachers do something, but it's something, uh, something new, but it's something that the researchers believe won't be effective. So it's a classroom management uh, technique that they think is not especially uh, useful. And the reason they do that is uh, to avoid the placebo effect, that uh, anytime you get people to do something new, it's possible that just the process, the, the, just the fact that there's something new may uh, bring about some positive change. Now, what's negative about this, uh, we argue in the piece, is that what you're, what you, the best thing that you can hope to show is that the new intervention is better than nothing. Um, and instead, what we, what we argue in, in, in line with this idea of offering teachers choices, we'd say, wouldn't it be great if instead of comparing my new method to nothing, I compare my new method to Marty's method that's already been published and is shown to be better than nothing. That's what teachers would really like to know, is Marty's be method better than Dan's method? Or getting back to our point before, is Marty's method really effective if your kids come from middle-class homes, but is not effective if your kids come from anything other than, right, you get the idea. It seems to me that the problem with the business as usual approach is actually even deeper than you suggested. You characterized results of studies based on that approach as showing that a given practice is better than nothing, but really the problem is you're, it's unclear what you're comparing your intervention to. There may be something else going on in those classrooms related to what it is that you're trying to solve. Uh, and so to some extent, you just don't know how to interpret the results of those studies. Uh, business as usual in one place where an intervention is being studied may be very different than business as usual in another place. And so unless we're gathering data and learning about what the relevant practices are, it becomes very difficult to know how to interpret the results of many studies. That's a, that's a great point. And so one thing, as you suggest, is that business as usual may be very variable across contexts and may be very variable within your sample. Um, another possibility is that the main thing that your intervention is doing is getting people to stop doing a business as usual practice that's actually counterproductive and people don't realize it. 
Now, the second feature of education research that you discuss is the focus or really the obsession with finding statistically significant differences. Any researcher will tell you that it's very hard, almost impossible to publish a study that generates no difference between the groups being compared or what researchers call a null effect. Why is that a problem? Right, so it's it's a problem uh, because we think it would be interesting, I say we, uh, meaning David and I, we suggest it would be interesting to practitioners to know that two uh, interventions are actually equally good. So again, going back to Marty's already got an intervention that's really effective for classroom management, um, and then I'm trying a new one, it shouldn't be the case that um, the only way um, uh, I get a publishable result, and uh, apparently an, an interesting result, is if I can beat you. Like if you've got a pretty good one, then I think practitioners would like to know, mine's as good as Marty's. And mine probably has some different features. Again, it might be uh, more appropriate for different contexts. It may just appeal to teachers or administrators more the way I've set things up compared to what the requirements for yours are. So again, the, the, the point of uh, null effects is we want uh, educators to have choices. So as you mentioned a moment ago, you and David actually gathered some data to find out just how pervasive these practices are in education research, or at least the education research that is published in prominent journals. So the use of business as usual rather than a active control group and sort of uh, a focus on only publishing statistically significant differences. What did you find? Yeah, so first of all, I do have to thank you, Marty, because I think it was your suggestion that we collect data. I think in the first pass of this article, we just blandly stated that our hypothesis was true. And you said, gee, don't you think you ought to like, be empirical about this, so thank you for that. Uh, so what we found was, yeah, there were, um, uh, what we had blandly stated, we predicted to be true, actually did turn out to be true, at least in the journals that we looked at. So we we looked at um, four journals over the course of five years, and then we took looked at two um, large-scale meta-analyses, uh, one in rating and, and one in science. Uh, and what we found was something uh, basically about 5% of the articles, if I'm remembering right, um, use the control group that we suggested would be interesting. So the 5% of the articles uh, compared a new intervention to something that was already out there and was known to be pretty effective. So 95% of the time, people are not doing that. Uh, and then when it came to statistically significant results, I think it was about the same, maybe a little less. I think it was about 4% of the uh, articles that we examined reported a null effect. So it was interesting to me, and in fact, a little bit disappointing to see the data that you all gathered upon my suggestion. There's certainly been a lot of conversation in the research community among journal editors and the like about the need to make it easier to publish null results. Um, but it doesn't seem as if we've actually made much headway in terms of actually uh, getting there. Well, and I and I do want to be fair. I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't canvas every single journal out, out there. We did, you know, try and pick high-profile journals that we thought were um, sort of field leaders. Um, and so it could be that we're we're still sort of on the trailing edge of this, and we're 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 going to see more of this activity. Um, the 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 most important innovation within the psychological excuse me the psychological community um, has been the idea of registered 
reports and, and register replications especially, but more generally register reports where um, and a group of researchers will propose an article and then reviewers will see only the, the data haven't been collected yet, but reviewers will just see the proposed methods and the analysis that's proposed. And then they give thumbs up or thumbs down to the article on that basis. And then the, the journal agrees to review it. So that's a, that really addresses the statistical significance uh, uh, problem because you know even if it's even if it's a null result, the journal has promised that they're uh, this is important and interesting, and we're going to publish it. So in some ways, what you and David Daniel are calling for is a paradigm shift in how education research is conducted. You just mentioned one step we might take to move in that direction, placing greater emphasis on pre-registered reports and even reviewing articles in advance prior to any data have been collected. But what else would it take to affect the change that you all want to see? I think there are two things. One is we really need a change in mindset. I think those of us who do empirical research and education are very much steeped in a scientific tradition that's really uh, geared towards basic research rather than applied research. In basic research, you really do assume that there is one best answer because what you're trying to do is model nature. And so nature only works one way. And so I'm constantly battling, you know, you can't be right and me right at the same time. So you and I are constantly battling out who's got the best model. Um, and that's why we're always, we're so focused on statistical significance. I have to show that my model is not equivalent to yours. I've got a better understanding of nature. So I feel like the emphasis within education research on statistical significance is sort of a hangover from that. And then I think the control group business is actually sort of a natural result of the uh, emphasis on statistical significance. Because if I know I've got to get statistical significance, frankly, I'm trying to game the system a little bit. I'm trying to give myself the best chance for my intervention to work. And I know that it's most likely to work when it's compared to nothing. So one thing I think that that's the first thing that uh, needs to happen is a, a change in mindset. But the really much more practical uh, thing that we need to change is funding mechanisms. Uh, and I so I think the government funders and also foundation funders need to understand that this is an issue and start showing that they are more receptive to proposals that will uh, in, engage these comparisons of successful uh, existing interventions. And that if you got a successful intervention and I have a new one that is at least as good as that, that's considered a win. And that would be considered a successful proposal because once the funders are doing it, I think the journals will follow. It becomes a lot easier to envision a mass change in mindsets among researchers if you uh, see that second change occur in terms of the incentives that they're facing uh, when conducting their research. Absolutely. You know, you know, I always believe whatever's in my proposal. So if you force me to write my proposal a certain way, then I'll just come to believe it. My guest today has been Daniel Willingham, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and co-author of Making Education Research Relevant, available now at educationnext.org. Dan, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you, Marty. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode.
And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.